0: Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike McKinney. I am the associate pastor here at uh, Church of Bergen. If you're new, just want to extend a special uh, welcome to you. And The reason why we're glad you're here is because every time we gather on Sundays, we're here to cast all of our love and our passions and our desires and our hopes and joy upon Jesus Christ. Uh, And also the reason why it makes us glad is because there's a possibility uh, that you actually might come to know this King. Uh, and just under worshiping Jesus Christ, one of the things that thrills the children of God most is to see a sinner reconciled and saved to Jesus Christ. Uh, also, if you just look b- behind me here, there's uh, this beautiful uh, picture. Our, our creative team uh, has been just, just doing an amazing job putting stuff like this together in the decorations. I'm thinking of uh, Julia Rivera, Aaron Nye. Uh, Eric Koenig, and Joy Laform. Uh, If I'm missing anyone else, I'm sorry. It was not intentional. If you see them, just tell them thank you. They've been doing such an amazing job. Um, Yeah, so seriously, yeah. Uh, They've been doing a wonderful job. Uh, So we've been doing a a series on Advent, five-week series. And the word Advent just means coming. So it's just a time that we remember the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to this world, died for sins, rose from the dead, uh, and then just those little subtitles says promises made, promises kept. Um, that's just a really helpful way to remember and understand like what, what's the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Promises made are all the promises that God has made in the Old Testament. And the New Testament is about how God kept those promises in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so if there's, I think there's a verse up here. 2 Corinthians 1:20. Uh, this is kind of a, this is the reason why we can say. Uh, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So then we can say amen to the glory of God. So the purpose of this series is to look at all the ways that God has kept his promises in Jesus Christ and then that would cause and ignite a sense of worship to God's faithfulness to you. That his word has never failed. That his faithfulness endured from the past into eternity future to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. And so we looked at God's promise to Adam and Eve uh, when they had sinned, but God promised an offspring to come to crush the head of Satan. And then many years later, God promised to Abraham that the offspring would also come through his line. And this offspring would bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And then... Abraham's kids had lots of kids and they had lots of kids and they had lots of kids and so they came, became the nation of Israel and God promised through Moses to the people of Israel that the blessing of Abraham, this offspring would also come through this nation and that they would be like a magnet to the nations and come to meet the one true God. And today, we're going to be looking at King David. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you do not have a Bible... There are some blue ones in the back there. You can use that. If you do not own a Bible, you can take that. It is yours. Merry Christmas. Take it and enjoy it. Second Samuel chapter 7. And before we begin, I'm just going to pray for our time together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are present with us, helping us to hear your word, helping me to preach your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that you did not withhold your own son. That you're not a stingy God. That you're lavish in your generosity. And when you say you're gonna do something, you do it. When you say you're going to save sinners, you save. When you say you're going to send a promised Messiah, you send him. And when you say that he is strong enough to bear the sins of the world, he did it. Help me now to be clear with your word and to do it with a heart that is in love with Jesus Christ and to the glory of Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. Okay, so just to give a little, little context before we dive into chapter seven, uh, this is probably one of the most important, magnificent, amazing promises that God has ever made in the Old Testament. Uh, so last week, Pastor Mike talked about the nation of Israel, and eventually, long story short, I could give a long kind of context, but it would just take too long. Eventually, God sets up a monarchy with the nation of Israel, and he sets up a king. The first king is Saul. He was a psycho. He was a bad king, just not good. Not, not good. I mean, literally, you read the story of 1 Samuel, just the dude is off. Um, he eventually, God rejects him as king, and he installs David as king. He gets anointed king over Judah, which is one tribe out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the reason why Judah is most important is because the capital of Jerusalem is there. Or Jerusalem is there of the tribe of Judah. And then he, soon after that, he gets anointed uh, king over the entire nation, all 12 tribes of Israel. Now, David's at the top. He is ruling he's reigning at the top. But all is not well. The Philistines are still pests. So he gets his army together, defeats the Philistines, reclaims the ark, takes it back to Jerusalem, leading the parade, and then he sits down on his couch in his kingdom, and that leads us to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's begin. Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. That's important to remember. That David is where he is on this day because of God. That means it's it's no different than with you and me. Everything that you have accomplished, whether you are a believer or not, all that you are, all that you have accomplished is due ultimately at the end of the day To the Lord's hand. So he'd given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Verse two the king said to Nathan, the prophet, the prophet was basically put in place by God to keep the king in check. Because yes, the king ruled over Israel, but in the kingdom of God, there is only one ultimate authority, and that's Jesus Christ. So even though he is king, the prophet is put there to let David know and all the other kings after him that the word of the Lord is the ultimate authority above him. This is why David's kind of doing it. He's checking in with Nathan if what he wants to do is okay. Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David finally gets a moment of rest, sits down on his couch. It's a nice couch, probably like Pottery Barn, restoration hardware, which everyone's more expensive, $3,000 couch. Sitting on his couch, and he's, I mean, how many of you guys have those things on your cell phones when you like adjust AC, lights, right? David's probably doing that on his phone. Um, he's got a really nice house, and then he looks out the window, and he sees... The ark of God dwelling underneath the tent that's been thrown over a piece of rope, strung up between two trees. And he's going, okay, this is something's off here. Because David knows that the Lord has been so good to him up until this point. And he's comparing his own house, the house of cedar, which is a nice house, compared to the little raggedy old tent. This is the tabernacle that was given to Moses in the Old Testament. And he's going, there's something off here. So David goes, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to do God a favor. I'm going to help God out. I'm going to pay him back for all the ways that he has been good to me. And in a sense, that's rational. It doesn't make sense for a human's house to be better than God's house. So he checks in with Nathan. Nathan, is that cool? Nathan hadn't received a word from the Lord yet, but he knows that the Lord had been with David this whole time, so he gives him the okay. So David goes off to sleep. Right, Nathan says, Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So Nathan goes, or excuse me, David goes to bed, and he's dreaming, right? He's dreaming about gold and jewels and the tabernacle of the temple and all that he's gonna build. And Nathan gets a word from the Lord. And he's gonna correct something in David's understanding of who God is. Because although David's intention his intentions are good. They're coming out of a misunderstanding of the nature and the character of God. Here's how I'm going to put it today. David has a theological glitch. And God is sending Nathan to give David a theological upgrade. And here's what I want to just encourage with us today. So, so David is approaching God. With a theological glitch, with a misunderstanding of the nature and character of God. How often do we approach God in prayer? Approach God in how we read our Bibles? Approach God in Sunday worship? With a misunderstanding of who God actually is. It's amazing. I, I've really only been in a full-time pastoral ministry for about six months now, with Pastor Mike, and I've learned. I have learned so much especially in counseling sessions. And it is amazing to me how many counseling sessions find the root cause in a theological glitch. How many times I've spoken to someone and the the root issue that's going on is they think that God is some punitive tyrant in heaven who wants to punish them for making a decision. This is why A.W. Toza said, What a man thinks about God is the most important thing about him. And so, though he's the king, it does not make him theologically perfect. So, he sends Nathan to do this. Look at verse 4, verses 4 through 5. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan Go tell my servant David. I'm going to just translate this. (laughs) Nathan, God, David said he wants to build you a temple. Lord, oh, he said that. Is that what he said? Go and tell my boy David. Give him a little message. I'm going to put the record straight. Verse 5. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Really, David? You're going to do me a favor. You're going to help me out. You're going to pay me back. That's cute. I appreciate the favor, David, but let me tell you how it's actually going to be. Look at verses 6 through 7. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Here's the glitch. David thinks that God needs help. David thinks that he's looking, that God is looking for him to pay him back. That God, that David needs to do him a favor. And if you're taking notes, here's the upgrade. The upgrade that God wants to give David is that God is not looking to get help. God's looking to give help. He's never looking to get help from you. He's always looking to give help to him. He says to David, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out from Egypt. It's been like this the whole time. And I have never given anyone the impression that I need something from you. David, have you forgotten the name by which I revealed myself to Moses? Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That word I am comes from the Hebrew word to be. God simply is. He's the self-existent one. He has absolutely no needs whatsoever. You and I, we need food. We need water. We need sleep. We need coffee. We need all these different things just to stay alive. Sorry, I just looked at my wife because she needs her coffee in the morning. And, Anyways. <laughs> we need these things to survive. All that God needs is within himself. He's self-existent. He needs nothing. He doesn't need your church attendance. He doesn't need your favors. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your religious observance. Do you realize that when we come in here on Sundays, we're not coming here to help God out? We are not doing him a favor when we come to sing and celebrate the cross of Christ. We don't come here filled up to pour out to God. We come empty to be filled up by God. When I come in here on Sundays, I'm like Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. If you are here and you are dry, you are in good company. If you are here and you are weak, you are in good company. If you are here and you need help, you are in very good company. If you're here and you're like, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to give to God. You're a perfect candidate for God's favor and grace and help. He goes on to say in Psalm 63, so I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. He does not need help. Listen to who your God is. Listen to who your God is. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, Nor is he served by human hands. This is the most important phrase as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything, he needs absolutely nothing. And here's my favorite one Psalm 50 in some hypothetical fairy land that does not exist. If God, in that hypothetical land, had needs, which he doesn't, but if he did, hypothetically speaking, he would not even tell us because he already owns everything. For every, Psalm 50, 10 to 12, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Pastor Mike loves that verse. Every time I, I express anxiety or whatever. He's like, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, Mike. Blesses my soul. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, he's playing games now. God God is being sarcastic here. If I were hungry, which I'm not, even if I were, I would not tell you for the world in its fullness are mine. This is step one in the theological upgrade in David's mind. God needs nothing. And step two, so step one, he's not looking to get help because he needs nothing. He's looking to give help. So the very fact that God needs nothing and is totally and infinitely and almost terrifyingly self-existent, needing absolutely nothing, this does not make him a stingy, isolated, neglecting God. People that we know who have it all put together, have everything they need, they kind of put themselves up in the little penthouse and put, look down, their sniveling noses. That's an over-exaggeration. But you can imagine, God's not up in heaven going, I got everything I need. Poor little beggars down in Jersey. The very fact that he is self-existent actually makes him overflow with a wealth of generosity towards those who are needy, which is us. Look how God says in verse eight. "Now, therefore, therefore." So David, because you thought that I needed something, I needed to just remind you that I don't, and let me tell you how it's actually going to look. Verse eight. Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince or leader over my people Israel. Remember you used to be the little shepherd boy? I took you from, your, your own father was embarrassed of you. Your own father hid you from me so that I wouldn't present you or choose you as king. And I came after you. I took you from the pasture when you were twiddling your thumbs with sheep and I made you prince. And I have been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. What's God doing? He's reminding David of all the ways that he has been so graciously favorable toward him. And, and let me just apply this to us. It's the end of the year. It's typically the time when you just pause from it and look back on your life. Maybe some of the reasons why you're so discouraged, I'm speaking specifically to Christians right now, um, Maybe one of the reasons why you're so discouraged with where you're at is because you're so busy looking at how much, how far you have to go. When you need to just stop and just turn around and look at how far he's taken you. I mean, it's like a marathon. Some of you are like, I still have six, I still got six miles to go. Let me do the math here. What's Okay, 23 miles minus six. Was it 17? Right? Okay. That was not in the manuscript. I actually, I had to do the math there. Um, you got six miles to go. And you're like, oh my gosh. And God's going, just stop. I've carried you 17 miles. What makes you think I'm going to stop? I have always been and always will be. I forgot where I was. <laughs> that was a little... Preaching rant there. Um, now, I should say, here we go. I can imagine, there may be a few of you who are going, that sounds cute and all, but frankly, I'm in the pasture right now. So I just encourage you look back on your pasture. Look back on the pastures that you used to be in. Look on the pastures that you used to be in, how far God has taken you. And some of you, maybe right now, you're thinking, you know what? Frankly, I'm in the pasture. And I'm waiting for God to to bring me out of this. I have two two encouraging words. And one, and they're both from Scripture, because I have nothing to offer. It's God alone. Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yes, you may be in the pasture, but what makes you think he has abandoned you? He has never left you. He said that to David. I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. The second thing is, when you're in that time, 1 Peter 5, I believe it is, I don't know the exact reference, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, the proper time, the proper time, his timing, he may exalt you. Humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God So that at the proper time, that phrase is so important. It's his timing, not ours. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. He's not abandoning you. He's with you in it, and he will take you out, whatever that circumstance may be. So God's not done with you, and he's not done with David. Because now, he just talked about how he has been helpful to David all in the past, and now he's going to say, it's not going to stop there it's going to go into future grace verse second half of verse 9 and what notice the future tense and i will make for you a great name like the name of all the great ones of the earth And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. He's just telling David, it's always been this way and it's gonna keep going like that. And all his future success in the future is entirely in the palm of God's hand. And all of his future success rests entirely in his sovereign grip upon his life. God's not looking to get help. He's looking to give help. Somebody needs to hear this verse today. I was preaching this verse to myself before was coming up here. You know, Pastor Mike and I may come up, we we may seem like we're confident, like we preach, but really, before we come up, we're just, we're begging God for help. That's really all it is. I think someone here needs to hear this verse. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. I once heard someone put it this way. God is not standing on the street corner with a help-wanted sign around his neck. He's standing on the street corner running around with a help-available sign around his neck. He's running around, who wants help? Who wants help? Who needs help? And here's the thing about God, he never gets tired of it. I mean, I've got, you know, kids, you just get exhausted from just always pouring yourself out, always pouring yourself, out. and sometimes you, you just run out. God never runs out. He never gets sick of helping his children. He never gets tired of giving favor to the needy and the helpless and the weak. But that's not all. Right here, David's going, Okay, all right, Lord, all right. I'm sorry, I got it. I get it. All right. I'm sorry I came to you. I thought you needed help. I thought you needed a favor, I thought I had to pay you back, I'm wrong, I apologize. And God's going, sit down, buckle up, I'm not even through yet. Because now God's going to take his promise into eternity. God is about to obliterate the synapses of David's soul. Verse 11. Second half. Just look with me at the first word. Moreover. Everybody say moreover. Moreover. That word, I have it highlighted in my Bible. That just stuck out to me because God's moreover, David. (laughs) You thought that was amazing on top of all that? You see, God's grace never comes in single waves, it comes grace upon grace upon grace. Ephesians 2.7 talks about God's salvation of sinners. This is the ultimate purpose, so that in the coming ages, age after age after age, he might show the immeasurable riches of in grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. It's just wave after wave. Moreover, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. (laughs) Wait, I was going to make you a house and now you're going to make me a house? That's right. That's right. That's how I roll. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. There's that word offspring again. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. Eternity. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from his as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God promises to give him an offspring who will sit upon his throne and his kingdom will endure forever. David's kingdom will never end. His throne will never end because of an offspring that is coming. And this offspring, it says, he will be to me a father. No, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, verse 14. And he is going to build the house. He's going to build the temple. See, ultimately, immediately, King Solomon, which is David's son, was the one who immediately fulfilled this promise, but what's interesting, because Solomon is the one who came and he was you know, David's son and he sat on the throne. It was one of the most glorious times in all of Israel's history. He is the one who built the temple. So immediately Solomon fulfilled the promise. But Solomon was unfaithful. You can read about this in 1 Kings 11. It is tragic. He goes after other gods, makes sacrifices to other gods. He's got a lust issue, not even joking. Uh, and it just takes him down. God takes the kingdom away. But he prom- God promises that, that he's never going to take the steadfast love, or the promise of the covenant, away from him. So verse 14b, mm. second half of verse 14 is the unique one. It was a puzzling part of this promise. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. So here's Here's the question. How, how can God how, how can God fulfill his promise if sin still reigns in the heart of men how can that be this is, this is even though God so how, there's this tension is sin always going to be reigning in the throne how, is, that can't be so it has to be some other offspring and I wonder who that could be Amen. <laughs> You see, many years later, another son of David came when he was born of a virgin girl. Luke chapter one. And the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, help, grace with God. And behold, you will conceive and in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, that's Israel, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Jesus, too, like God with Israel, walked around in a raggedy old tent And gave us grace upon grace, John one fourteen and sixteen. And the word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt means he made his tent. It actually is. He made his tabernacle among us. That's exactly way back in verses verse six. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people out of Egypt, but I have made sorry been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. When Jesus Christ came, he walked around in a raggedy old tent. He came so unexpectedly. They were expecting this this glorious, beautiful, and he came around just as a a poor man. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. But there's more. (laughs) Remember what God said to David about the offspring? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. You see, Jesus was punished with the rods of men, dressed as a king. Mark fifteen nine. The soldiers beat Jesus on the head many times with a stick. It's a rod. They spit on him and made fun of him by bowing their knees and worshiping him. You see, Jesus also received the stripes of the sons of men dressed as a king. John 19, one through three. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. I'm sure you know what that is. And they took the whip and just stripes all over his back and his body, crucifixion. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. This is mockery at it's in its purest form. And there's such irony here. And they came up to him, Hail, King of the Jews! But unlike all the other kings from the line of David, including David, Jesus never did anything worthy of punishment or death. Mark 14:55 Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, they could find nothing wrong. John 18, 38, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. John 19, 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. When Jesus was carrying his cross, the apostle Peter testifies to what was going on. First Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth and even till his last breath. Luke 23, 47, Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Why then was Jesus punished? (laughs) Jesus did not come just to have dominion over us. He came to die for us. Jesus was not receiving the punishment for his own iniquities Jesus was not being pierced for his own transgressions. When this king was walking among the others, when he was being crucified, he was being punished and pierced, not for his own sins, but for ours. And he did it gladly. To the point of death, and when he rose again from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is now, currently, this moment, reigning and ruling over all of us. And we like David. Are being overwhelmed by His grace upon grace. This is the theological upgrade. When you see the true King, who did not come and say, "Look how great I am," He look how great He came to serve. Mark ten forty five. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served. God's not looking to get help, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the question is, have you received this theological upgrade? Has God transformed your mind to see the grace upon grace that's in the true king? How do you know? Here's the thing. There may be some of you here who you already know. you already know, that God does not need help he comes to give help. You already know that. You already know that the greatest form of help is in the form of Jesus Christ. But there's a difference between reading about an upgrade and actually sticking your phone into the cord and getting the upgrade. David, God did not transform the way David viewed God by giving him a bullet point lecture he transformed his mind about God by overwhelming him with an experience of his grace. There's a difference between reading about the Grand Canyon and someone actually holding your shirt collar and dangling you over the cliff so that your guts go crazy. I wonder how many of us You know a lot about the Grand Canyon of God's grace in Jesus Christ. But you never let God dangle you over the cliff and see the bottomless, endless, insane depths of his crazy love for you so that you can't even stand. Your knees buckle under the weight of this love, which is what David did. (laughs) And here's how you know. How do I know if this has happened to me? Look at David's prayer. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat. This is speculation, but I wonder if he sat down because he just couldn't stand anymore. Went in and sat before the Lord. I love the first part. Who am I? so that, that question is so simple, but it says so much. When's the last time you ever said that and meant it? When's the last time that you have just said, Who am I? Who am I? I cannot believe that Jesus died for me. Cannot believe that Jesus will be so gracious to me? And he goes on to say, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because your promise and according to your own heart you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord. There's none like you. When's the last time you prayed like that? When's the last time you've you've buckled under the weight of God's grace for you? When's the last time you you just crumbled? under his love for you. just melted. Let's come to a close. I just want to speak to the the unbeliever first, and I want to speak to the believer. Maybe uh, you're not a Christian here. Maybe you've never been to church. Um, And frankly, you just want to be king of your own life. And you think kind of bowing to Jesus is kind of weird, and bowing to Jesus is kind of strange. You're raising your hands, worshiping Jesus, that's just strange. My question to you is this: then why are you bowing down to the idols of this age? Why have you, why do you continue to prostrate your heart to the gods of this world of money, sex, power, work, etc.? The question is not, do you bow down to something? The question is, who or what do you bow down to? All the idols of this world want to get from you, get from you, get from you. There is one king. There is one who wants to give, give, give. And he has proven it when he gave his life for your sins. So my if you're here now a Christian, why bow the knee to Jesus. Bow the knee to Jesus. If you're not going to bow to him, you're going to bow to something else. So Why would you bow to that which will kill you? Bow to the king who promises life, who promises grace, who promises mercy. Bow to him today, now. You can become a Christian now. You can welcome you now. This moment. Do it now. To the Christian, to the believer, I was just looking up why why, why upgrades are so important. <laughs> Number one, you're vulnerable to outside attack, hackers, identity theft, and I thought, huh, <laughs> that's interesting. If you continue to think that God wants to get help from you and is not eager to give you help through the King Jesus. The enemy, Satan himself, will get a foothold and he wants to steal your identity. He knows who you belong to. I once heard someone put it this way. Satan does not just want to tempt you. He wants to take you and adopt you. He wants to take you out of the kingdom of light and he wants to bring you unto the kingdom of darkness. And he's, one of his greatest deceptions is to continue to convince you that you have to pay God back that you have to do him a favor. And you're going to be exhausted and you're going to be empty and you're going to be dry because you're always going to thinking that you've got to do something for God. And it's like, you're always going to feel like you're doing chores for him. Not knowing. Not knowing that if you're empty, that you're a perfect candidate for Christ. The second reason why upgrades are so important is you're unable to get the most out of your device. Without this theological upgrade, knowing that the greatest form of God's help is through King Jesus, without this, you will you are hindering your ability to experience the fullness of what God has for you. You will always think that you have to pay Him back, and it's an ex- it's an exhausting hobby to think that you have to work and earn and do favors for God and pay him back not knowing that any service that a Christian does is never done out of his own strength his or her own strength. This is where we'll end. 1 Peter 4 11. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.